I'm hard to listen to. No, it's really very heartening for me to see so many younger guys up here. Because, you know, you young guys have not, not had the opportunity to calcify and fossilize like old guys like me. So, you, you've got a chance. Now, it wasn't all that long ago that I was young like you, and I remember that there was a nagging, nagging doubt in the back of my mind. And the nagging doubt in the back of my mind was, do I have what it takes to be a man? Now, maybe you're like me, you young guys. Maybe you're thinking about that. Let me save you some time and effort. You don't have what it takes. Now, I want you to look around at the older guys in here because they don't have what it takes either. Up to this point, the universe has produced one and only one man who has what it takes. And if you're going to learn how to have what it takes, you're going to learn it from him. So we're going to spend time this morning talking about being a leader in your home, but I'd like to offer for your consideration that the things that we're going to talk about have application to all of life, not just the home. So let me start by illustrating what I perceive to be a significant problem in the body of Christ. And I'm going to raise for your consideration three guys, and I do so not to hold them in derision, not to make fun of them, because everything that those guys have in their lives, I have in my life. Okay? Guy number one. Not so many months ago, Winston was putting on a conference like this in Arizona. And shortly before the conference, I ran across a Christian brother, and I asked him if he was interested in going to the conference. He said, well, what's it about? I gave him a thumbnail sketch of the whole thing, and he said, gosh, that sounds great, but I don't have any money. I said, dude, that is not an issue. Don't worry about that. Winston is rich as Rockefeller. (laughs) He underwrites the whole thing. You know, that $160 fee, that's, that's just a test to see who's serious. So you don't have to worry about money. Well, he says, I do. I do have to worry about money because my wife says to me that I don't make enough money. And she says, because of that, I can't take any handouts. Hmm. Now, I happen to know some, another fact about this fellow, and that is that he's meeting with a counselor. And his counselor is in the process of teaching him how to be a gentler shepherd. 
And I think to myself, guys, if he gets any gentler, he's going to sprout ovaries. Guy number two, my age, has kids my age, my kids' age. His um, wife is a micromanager. She's a nitpicker, a control freak. The husband uh, provided very, very well for his family. He, uh, he's retired, and he and his wife just travel. Both of his kids are now married. The son married a very strong woman. The daughter married a very weak man. And my wife meets with this woman to pray for her kids, and she prays, God, help my son not to be so fearful. Help him to head his home. And for the daughter, she says, God, help her not to be so controlling. Help her to yield to her husband's leadership or lack thereof. And bless her heart, guys, she has not the foggiest idea how that happened. Guy number three, again, man my age, recently got all charged up about doing ministry. And in the process of doing ministry, of course, he's meeting with guys, and guys have girlfriends and wives. And he discovers that the girlfriends and wives need ministering to as well. And so he wanted to enlist the help of his wife. But he wasn't sure how to approach her. So he came and asked, uh, asked my counsel on it. I said, well, what do you think she's, uh, she's going to do when you ask her? Oh, she's going to get mad. What are you going to do next? And so we talked about you know, what his next move would be uh, if, in fact, she got mad. And so he left and said, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So a number of months went by, and, and I asked him if he'd had the conversation with his wife. He said, yeah, I had it. Well, how did it go? Just like I expected, she got mad. What'd you do? Well, I decided that I was going to let the Holy Spirit take care of that. And so I just uh, shut my mouth. Well, I was, that was over a year ago, and the Holy Spirit has continuing to fall down in his job. She's still not doing it. And guys, I am just like those men. What I do with my glasses? Now, what I'd like to do for us this morning is talk about how did we get into this position. And number two, what do we do about it? Now, I've enlisted the aid 
of Mike here. Mike, would you stand up and show these guys what a studly dude you are? <coughs> Mike's going to be my reader for the morning, and um, I'm uh, greatly appreciative of his assistance. Guys, I'd like to suggest to you that our problem began long before we were born, that it began in the Garden of Eden. Mike's going to read for us Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And in those verses, Adam and Eve have sinned, and God is coming looking for them. Mike? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Sports fans, Genesis 3.10 is you and me. We are hardwired by those three words, nakedness, fear, and hiding. That is the M.O. of men. What is nakedness? Well, in Adam's case, of course, it was a literal lack of clothing. I suspect it was also a sense of profound guilt. But some of us feel a sense of profound guilt, and some of us maybe not so much. But there are other words that I suggest to you are closely related to this issue of nakedness. Words like powerless, weak, inadequate, exposed, vulnerable. And then, gentlemen, that is a central core of your being that when you lay awake at night, you sense this. Now, Adam's response to his nakedness was fear. And so too for me. What am I afraid of? Well, Adam was afraid of the judgment of God. I'm afraid of the judgment of God. But I've also taken my fear and I've transferred it to a number of areas that are illegitimate. See, I'm afraid that people are going to find out what I really am. I'm afraid that people are going to reject me. I'm afraid, gosh, what if, what if somebody in this room asks me a question? I don't know the answer. What if they find out how really inadequate for this task I am? Oh, man. That's that boy. Please, God, don't let him find that out. See, my middle name is Lee, but my real middle name is Fear. So what do I do with my fear? Well, I do what Adam did. I hide. Now, there's a lot of ways to hide, guys. 
a lot of ways. Jeremiah 9.23 gives us three excellent hiding places. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Those three things, huh? Wisdom, power, money. See, if I just show guys that I'm smarter than they are, I can control them. I can keep them at bay. I can have the relationship on my terms. If I wield power over men, they're subordinate to me. I can have the relationship on my terms. If I have money to buy myself influence and prestige, my terms. So that's why we go out and try to make our mark in the world, isn't it? We want the world to know that we're somebody, lest they find out that we're nobody. I call that creating a diversion, hiding behind those three things. Oh, I can also put up a front. A year or two ago, Jana K. Henriksen's, Walt's daughter, said to me, Jerry, I remember the first time I met you. It was in Hong Kong. And um, we were meeting you in the airport, and we were going to fly to China. And I remember that you and your wife were walking down the hall, and um, this is what I thought to myself. Here comes the meanest-looking man I've ever seen. <laughs> and next to him, the face of an angel. And my wife ate that up, needless to say. The meanest man I ever saw. I can put up a front for you. I can keep you at bay. See, if I just look and act tough enough, you won't mess with me. Put up a front. You guys, we all have a veneer. We all have something that we project to others that is less than who we really are. True? Just, just how we are. Another way we hide is we run from conflict. I hate confrontation. I absolutely despise it with every bone in my body. And by the grace of God, I married a woman who loves conflict. <laughs> she doesn't bat an eyelash to take me on. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, every time she does it, it's like this. I'm, I'm scared. She, the woman terrifies me. <laughs> and I have a very gentle wife, but she absolutely terrifies me. Or you can capitulate. You can resign yourself. You can give up. 
The poet Henry David Thoreau says, The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Just get beat up and beat up and beat up. Just give up. Now, guys, I would like to suggest for your consideration that the heart of hiding is cowardice. And I am speaking to a room full of cowards. And I am your queen. That's problem number one that you and I face as we desire to become men of God, as we desire to lead our homes. Questions or comments about that? We're going to dissect these out some more, but um, any thoughts? Okay. Problem number two. Mike, would you read for us Genesis 3, 16 through 19? To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Notice that there is a curse selected for Eve and a curse selected for Adam. The curse of Eve has to do with childbirth and it has to do with desire for her husband. She has an attraction for her husband that is somehow different than ours for our wives. Now, guys, I'm not an expert on curses. That is a first-class curse that my wife has a desire for me. And don't think that she doesn't know it. She knows it in spades. My curse, on the other hand, has to do with my vocation. Tilling the earth or selling real estate or practicing law, practicing medicine, whatever. God says, I'm going to put you out there, I'm going to make you work, and then when I do that, I'm going to oppose everything you do. Now, guys, that combination of curses produces an asymmetry. It produces a torque on marriage. Now, I'm going to explain this diagram in a moment, but before I do, I know you're asking yourselves this question. Why on earth did he go into medicine instead of art? I can assure you, though, I'm not quite as good a doctor as I am an artist. I'm still okay. Let's talk about her first. Her desires for her husband. 
Your wife has an investment in her home and how it operates, how things are done with the kids in a way that you do not. That's on purpose. This is her life. This is where her heart is. You, on the other hand, are standing outside the home looking for pie in the sky, seeking your rainbow, seeking your riches, seeking your fame and glory, while all the time your wife is staring at the back of your head trying to get your attention. Am I making myself clear? Do you understand that? Do you see that in your marriages? That's where it is, guys. This asymmetry, this torque, if you're not aware of it, will come back and bite you and put you in situations that you'll regret all your life. Questions or comments about that? Okay. Let's move on. My first problem is Genesis 3.10, who I am, my nakedness, my fear and my hiding. My second problem is the curse. Her curse is different from my curse, and because of it, torque is placed on our relationship. Problem number three, Mike, Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19. There are three things. Three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of a sea, and the way of a man with a virgin. The way of a man with a virgin. How do men and women work? Now you have heard from the lips of the smartest man who ever lived. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know how it works. I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to tell you what your wives want. Your wives want two things. They want worship, and they want you to understand them. Now, I hasten to point out the obvious, that one of those things is a sin, and the other the other one is simply impossible. <laughs> now, guys, we've got three nails in our coffin so far. We don't understand them. Her curse is different from mine, and I am wired to be a coward. And those are massive problems, but it's not over. Problem number four has to do with philosophy and technology. Offer for your consideration, men, that philosophy and technology have taken gigantic strides in the direction of alleviating your wives from her curse. Childbearing. With birth control pills, 
She can control when and if she has children. Secondly, if she chooses to have children, medicine can alleviate all of her pain. She doesn't have to suffer a whit. Thirdly, she doesn't need you to get her pregnant. She can go down to that sperm bank and buy premium grade instead of the regular that you're selling. <laughs> and the fourth thing that has happened is feminism. The history of men and women is a pretty sad history. We men have used women for as long as there have been men and women. Get them pregnant and move on to the next one. Leave her there with that little kid. And she doesn't know how she's going to take care of that little kid. But today she does. She's got a college degree. She can make as much or more money than you. She doesn't need you to raise that kid. She can take care of herself. She's a woman of independent means. And guys, that fourth nail in the coffin has been catastrophic in the relationship between men and women. Questions or comments? Would you just ex say that last one again and explain it? Yeah, the curse of women has to do with childbirth, the raising of children, and a desire for her husband that is manifest in this way. That is, in the curse, God designed it so that she had to look to you to take care of this. She doesn't have to do that anymore. No longer the need, exactly. Any others? I realized I've insulted you to the max, so please don't be mad at me and ask me questions if you have them. All right? Let's talk about what I can do about this. Guys, you can't change the curse. It was issued by God. You live under it, and you just can't change it. You can't change technology and philosophy. All those things are alive and well, and you can't change it. You can't understand them. That's not going to change. I've been married 31 years. I have a 28-year-old daughter. They're the finest women on the planet. 
I love them with all I've got. But I don't understand either one of them. You know, my wife talks to me. I listen to those words and I say to myself, I know the mean of every one of those words. I understand. But she strings those words together and I respond. And she looks at me like, why aren't you listening? Reminds me of what Winston Churchill said about the Brits and the Americans. He said, we are two nations divided by a common language. That's us and women, isn't it? I can't change that. That leaves me with only one option. That leaves me with Genesis 3.10. What am I going to do about my nakedness? What am I going to do about my fear? And what am I going to do about my hiding? And men, that's what we're going to concentrate on. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. What a wonderful verse. I am so glad that that is true. But I have to confess to you that as I examine my life, I don't seem all that new to me. I'm the same knucklehead I was the day I met Jesus. I struggle with the same issues, the same sins that I did the day I met him. I'm a mess. I thought I was supposed to be a new creature. How do I become a new creature? Mike's going to offer us some help on this. John chapter 15. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Abide in me. Because if you don't, you can't do anything. I remember having a conversation a number of years ago with a college student about that passage. And he said, well, you know, that's, that's typical uh, Jesus hyperbole. He, he's, he's overstating things. There's lots of things that I can do without him. And I asked him to enumerate those things for me. He said, well, for instance, I got up this morning, brushed my own teeth, fed myself, clothed myself. I didn't see Jesus around. Fair enough. Let's talk about tomorrow morning. Let's say between now and tomorrow morning, you're driving down the road, and the drunk crosses the center line and nails you. And you're a quadriplegic for the rest of your life. Let's talk about those things now but those things that you can do without him. See, guys, we dressed ourselves this morning by divine permission. 
And any time he wants to pull the plug on it, he can. And if you delude yourself into thinking otherwise, you are a first-class fool. Apart from him, you and I can do nothing. So, how do I abide in him? Number one, you've got to spend time with him. You have to say to yourself, abiding with him is so important that I am going to carve out time of a schedule that is way busier than I wish it were. And I'm going to spend time reading his word and meditating on it, thinking on it. I remember when I first started doing that. I found myself staring at the page for minutes, hours. I'm waiting, Lord. Give me the good stuff. It takes practice. Understand that it's his initiative, not yours. You do have to make yourself available. But you do have to learn to abide. You do have to learn to listen to his voice. And you do it by spending time, and when you come away from that experience discouraged, unfed, unencouraged, you get up and you do the same thing the next morning. And you do that until he takes you home. You will find him. But there's a second thing that you have to do. Whatever it is he teaches you, whatever it is he reveals of himself to you in those times, you have to apply it. You have to apply it to your life. You have to take risks because, guys, he says some preposterous, outlandish things. If you have the experience on a regular basis of walking away from your quiet times with the Lord Jesus and you are not afraid, you have not understood what you've read and what he has said to you. He says scary, scary things. And he says, I want you to do those things. And not only do I want you to do them, I want you to teach others to do them. Give it away. I didn't show that to you to make you smart. I showed it to you to change you and so that you could give it to, to other guys. He is the only place that you will find on planet Earth where you can cover your nakedness. And to cover your nakedness, you must learn to abide. Questions or comments? TJ. Back 
subject to the curse that we can't change. So what? What 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 do we do with that? I mean, what what how does that help us? Um, we can't change it. The world is changing around us. How do we deal with it? Well, TJ, it, it shows you where your plan of attack ought not to be. But having said that, you can't change the curse. It seems to me that one of my responsibilities before my family is to surface for them what the issues are. And so I talk with my family about the things I just talked with, with you all about, this modernity, the, the, the modern things that have occurred, and what the implications of those things are. Anyone else? Um, if I could back up to, um, to the Proverbs 30 verse that says that we can't understand women, is it safe to assume then that they're not going to understand us? I wish it were. <laughs> See, my wife has got my number. I am a very simple, simple creature. We guys, we know what we, what we want out of life, don't we? Give us three things and we're fat, dumb, and happy. Give us sex. Yeah, I heard that all. Yeah, everybody knows. Give me sex. Give me games. Give me time to hang out with the guys. Give me a venue for doing that. And give me respect. Give me those three things and I don't care about anything else. My wife knows that about me. But she is wired in a more complicated way than I. I can't figure her out. Good question. Any others? Micah. Uh, science and, science and uh, technology, things you talked about, modernity, like women going to college, getting degrees, epidural abortion, all those sorts of things that have lessened the curse. Would you say those are negative things or, or somehow sinful? Yeah, good question, Micah. Micah, what that has done is, for me at least, to pro produce tremendous ambivalence. He asked me if my daughter is ever going to have children, would I want her to have an epidural? And I say, Big time. Man, I, I don't want to see her in pain. Do I want her to use birth control so that she can have children when she wants them? Well, I can't very well say no to her because I did. Was I right in doing that? I don't know, Micah. I really don't know. And I'm pretty nervous about it. So I've got tons and tons of ambivalence about it and very little smart to say. I don't know. Say to you guys that in these areas, you are working in, at your own risk. 
You've got to get yourself before God and try to listen to His voice. I, at least when I do it, am doing it with fear and trembling. Yes. Is uh, the alleviating of the curses for both men and women, um, does that move us away from our dependence on God? I guess in my mind I'm thinking why I would be okay with the curse, or it seems like I would fight that. Well, I said that the curse of the woman is being alleviated, not my curse. But understand that when I am doing this, when I am seeking my fortune out here, what I'm really doing is seeking independence from God. And that's exactly what she's doing when she has access to all of these modern things that she previously didn't have access to. Yes, sir. Uh, I had a question about if we can't understand them, why does Paul ask us to live with them according to understanding? Yeah, First Peter 3. He says to live with your wives in an understanding way. To understand someone and to live with them in an understanding way is two different things. For example, say I'm a, um, I'm a criminal profiler and I'm trying to track down <clears throat> Ted Bundy. I understand what makes Ted Bundy tick. But I can't live with him in an understanding way. I can't tolerate what he's doing. I have to stop it. So too with your wife. You can live with her in an understanding way without understanding her. Being gentle with her taking her seriously, seeking her advice and opinions. Another question back there? Yes, sir. Well, are we helping our daughters if we encourage them to, first off, I guess college is that concept of gaining independence. Are we helping or hurting? Do you encourage your daughters to that degree? Again, I don't know. If, if you want the, the truth, the answer is I don't know. If you want an academic answer, I'll take a, take a stab at it, okay? But the, but the real answer is I don't know. What I did, and I'm not saying to you that this is what you ought to do, but what I did was get both of my kids. I have a daughter and a son. I got both of them as much education as they could, they could tolerate. My wife is a physician. I met her in medical school. My daughter is a physician. She's in her third year of post-medical school training. Was I right in encouraging her in that? Well, I obviously felt comfortable enough with it to do it. But I have no illusion if in the day that I stand before the Lord Jesus, he says, Bangor, what on earth were you thinking? 
I'll have no defense for it. Would I do it again? I think I would. I think I would. But I can't defend it. Now, if, uh, if God is all and all-knowing, he knows the future, the past, the present, the gifts were, were given us to alleviate some of the women's curse. They certainly got the worst end of the deal because we've gotten to the point where we accept our cowardice and our fear and our hiding. Now it's just a question of how do we deal with it. Well, they think, I think they got the worst end of the deal. I wouldn't want to pop out seven pounds. I wouldn't want to carry it. I wouldn't want to bleed every month and deal with the cramping. But in 15 years of dealing with women on a day-to-day -day basis, one thing I've come to the conclusion, and I'm right or wrong, it's my conclusion, women have the ability to transition between left and right, between logic and emotion. We do not. Innately, we see black and white. We see the end of the road. They see the end of the road, but there's flowers along the way. Um, we uh, don't have that ability. And the minute we have the ability to transition between logic and emotion, uh, then we question ourselves. Um, but uh, hand over fist here, they've got the better side of the deal, and all we did was utilize the gifts we had to alleviate the pain in the ones we love. Does that... Yeah. I just don't want to look at this as... Are we doing a bad thing by alleviating a curse? Um, it almost look, sounds, seems a little archaic to think of, you know, okay, maybe it was an opportunity for us to learn how to do so. We, on the other hand, are stuck being men. But we have one way to alleviate as, as, as well. Women gave us one excuse, one out. And that is, sorry, I'm a guy. And we do have that. And they, they let us have that. But we, in turn, have alleviated some of their pain. I just don't want to think of it as like a bad thing for doing so. Am I wrong to think as such? Well, like I said, I, I clearly have voted with my feet. But in doing so, I've got a lot of anxiety about it. And just, just one other point about your comments. What your culture is attempting to do is to make you into a woman. Well, be a sensitive man. Be touchy-feely. Yeah. Well, all right. My question is why? Why is that so bad? Um, if, if it can help us to understand women more. Um. Yeah. The question you have to be preoccupied with is, are, are you a married man? Yes. Okay. You're a married man. The question that you need to be preoccupied with is, how do I best love my wife? And that is not the same question as, how do I understand my wife? What if... What if the best way to love your wife is to be a man? And my 
suggestion to you is that is precisely what the scripture says. Be a man. And one must define being a man. Yeah. That's why Jesus has to be our example. But not only our example, he has got to be the resources, the resource through which I become a man. Any other questions? Jerry, I just, um, I'm just hoping you're going to throw us some bones here in a minute because you pretty much, uh, you know, cut my heart out. You know, you've gutted me pretty good here, and, and I mean, you, you know, you've you've stomped on me pretty good, and and rightfully so. But you know, what can we do about that? Well. Understand, I'm, I'm standing here trying to hold my own guts in. But that's what I hope to do before we're all done. There is a way out. Any other? Yes, sir. The, the last comment you made about Jesus being an example, uh, what comes to mind is when Jesus was relating to the woman at the well. Uh, she seems to me to have been a very strong-willed woman. Um, is there and, any other kind? Yeah, I think there are. I, um, my view is most men don't know how to deal with strong-willed women. They don't want them. Couldn't agree and, more. And Jesus here seems to be relating to her and she to him in a, in a manner of mutual respect. Any thoughts or comments? I am not aware, I'd be open for uh, input, I am not aware of anywhere in the scriptures where I am commanded to respect my wife. Do I respect my wife? I respect my wife in spades. But I don't know of a command to do it. See, guys, we have an idea of how life is supposed to work, including marriage. Now, for the most part, we don't know where those ideas come from. They just sort of seeped into us by osmosis. And so we come to Christ, and we've got all of those ideas, and we think that's how life ought to be run. And if you abide with him, you learn that a whole lot of what you thought was true is wrong. And guys, that is what I'm trying to challenge you with. Are you willing to put aside what your presuppositions and biases are and look for what the Bible tells you is your role as a husband and father? Set aside all the stuff that you thought was right and just look to the scriptures. Um, question here, maybe way off base, but if we look to Jesus as our example, 
he was never in a spousal relationship. So how can we, we can't learn from him in that aspect. Really? And, well, he was married to the church, correct. Let me suggest to you that you can learn from him, and we'll get there. <coughs> Move on? Yes, Jack. Are you going to, you, hello? You'd mentioned you were ambivalent about the woman changing the curse. Are you ambivalent about men changing their curse? In spades. Okay. Our attempt to change the curse is to become women. And your culture reinforces you to do that. I'm sorry? Our culture. Correct. Our culture. Let's talk about fear for a moment. Fear is not a bad thing. Matter of fact, fear is a very good thing. Jesus tells us explicitly, Matthew 10, 28, to fear God. But there's lots of other things that are legitimate sources of fear. I'm afraid to jump in the ocean on top of a great white shark. I'm afraid to play ping pong in a freeway. I'm afraid of lots of things. And that's a very good thing. The fear that I'm talking about is the fear to execute the will of God. That is the type of fear that got Adam into trouble. True? God says, don't eat of that. Adam ate. And we as men have fear of executing the will of God because he asks us to do crazy things. He asks us to do things that in our own reasoning we would never have decided to do. And if you run from that fear, you are a coward. And I'm here to suggest to you that God does not cotton to cowards. He takes a very, very dim view of them. Talk about that in a minute, but let me have uh, Mike read for us 2 Corinthians 12.9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Guys, I have um, tried to find the scriptures, search through the scriptures, and find some biblical attributes that I actually possess. If I go to Galatians 5. Through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I go down that list and I say, you've got to be kidding me. You got anything else to throw me? Sort of like this gentleman asked me, you got any bones to throw me, God? So God throws me a bone. He throws me 2 Corinthians 12.9. He says to me, power is perfected in weakness. 
God, thank you. If weakness is the criterion, I'm your man. Power is perfected in weakness. Now, men, if you are going to be, if you're going to be the man who God wants you to be, you will understand that you are profoundly and irreversibly weak. And you will further find that as you live there, there's another person who lives there. And he makes you strong. Not because you're tough, not because you're strong, but because he is. And he's going to show you how to be a man. Power is perfected in weakness. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever leave that place. You are weak. I am weak. God has thrown me a bone. Guys, as I suggested, fear in and of itself... Fear in and of itself is not a problem. The problem is, what do I do with my fear? And there are two responses that a man can have to fear. The first response is cowardice. The bullets are flying over your head, and you duck and run. Cowards. You see, cowardice all throughout the Bible. You see, cowardice in Adam, for example. God comes looking for Adam, and he says, what have you done? And Adam says, the woman. She's the problem. He picks her up and throws her to the dogs. Take her on, God. She's the problem. I'm going to hide behind her. Cowardice. You see, cowardice with the nation of Israel, Israel at Kadesh Barnea. The spies come back and say, man, there are giants in that land. Next to them, we're grasshoppers. There is no way we're going into that land. God says, fair enough. There is no way you're going into that land. Your children will. Cowards. I'm a coward. Remember a number of years ago, I went to the chairman of my department with some complaints. I was concerned about the residents. I, to part of the, the work that I do involves teaching residents. So I sit there at the microscope and um, look at the thing and make a diagnosis. Oh, yeah, that's a skin cancer. That's not a skin cancer. It's this or that. And then the resident generates the report that eventually ends up on the chart, and the doctor taking care of that patient acts on whatever we put in that report. And I said to my chairman, I have a real problem because your residents are not accurately reflecting in the reports what I have said. 
Not only that, they're not reading the way they need to. And he said, Jerry, you are right as rain. That is true. Would you come to our monthly resident meeting and tell them about their failure to meet your expectations? I said, I'd be happy to. So I go in there, and about halfway through my, my ramblings, department chairman interrupts me. He says, Banger, residents aren't the problem, you are. You're capricious, you're arbitrary. Don't pick on the residents. You're the problem. And I'm reeling. He torpedoed me. I didn't see it coming. I think I should have because he'd done it to other guys before, but I just didn't see it. And so I left that meeting with my tail between my legs and uh, went home and thought and prayed and got counsel and I, I know what to do. So I'm into the third day of it, and it's the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, I wake up. And I know it's God knocking on my door. My initial response was, Lord, you know that I have big fish to fry here. Can't we do this later? I need rest. Back off. He didn't back off. Made me roll out of bed. made me think things like this. Jerry, how would you respond to this situation if you were independently wealthy? God, it's a no-brainer. Tell him to fold his job five ways and keep it. But God, you and I both know I'm not independently wealthy. Yeah, we do. We do. I am, though, God says. I'm independently wealthy. Have I ever been less than generous with you? No. No, you haven't. Snap me like a twig. Broke me. God, I'm thinking like the pagans. I teach one thing to men and I, I do the opposite myself. Oh, Lord. Forgive me. As soon as I have my tears shed, as soon as I ask his forgiveness, the weight of the world lifted from my shoulders. And I gave you my resignation. Now, I tell you this story for two reasons. Number one, we are all exceedingly vulnerable in our vocations. True? We all feel tremendous exposure out there. But I tell you this story for a second reason, and that is because it is very reminiscent of something that happened with my wife. Not long ago, I'm sitting in my family room. And guys, that particular day, all was well with the world. Great kids, great wife, great house, great job, cool car. 
The cloud of spiritual studliness was all around me. <laughs> My wife sits down next to me. She says, Jerry, we have to talk. My eyes pop out of my head. I felt just like I did when my department chairman torpedoed me. I had that same pit-in-the-stomach feeling. But then she issues the coup de grace. We have to talk, Jerry, and you have to promise not to get mad. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> Why did I respond like that? Why did those emotions come to me? I'm a coward. I'm a coward. So I had to talk to my wife. I had to talk with her on a level that made me exceedingly uncomfortable. But I had to do it. Now, guys... Let me suggest to you that God takes an exceedingly dim view of cowardice. And Mike is going to read a couple of passages for us. The first is in Hebrews 10, verses 37 and following. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are not of those who draw back or shrink back. Because God says those who shrink back, those who meet adversity and their heart melts, they retreat. My soul takes no pleasure in them. Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. And note with me as Mike is reading this, that in verses 6 and 7, the believers in Christ are being talked about. But he switches gears on us in verse 8. And it's verse 8 that I want you to especially note. Mike, verses 6 through 8. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will, give the I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, Sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Did you get a load of that rogues gallery of infamy? There's some nasty, nasty folks there in verse 8. But did you note with me who number one is? The cowards. Cowardice is enough to send you to hell. Guys, be instructed. Be instructed. You cannot afford the luxury of running. <coughs> Cowardice is one response to fear. Its opposite is courage. How does a man gain courage to face the things that he doesn't want to? Mike Hebrews 4, 14 to 16.
seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to, boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come boldly. He can sympathize with your weakness. He knows what it feels like to want to turn tail and run. Go to him. Power is perfected in weakness. Go to him. He'll take care of you. He is faithful. He won't let you down. Now that, guys, is on the vertical. That's how a man gains courage on the vertical. How do you do it on the horizontal? Mike, Luke 9, 23, 24. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I know of few passages in the scriptures that are more counterintuitive than Luke 9, 23, 24. You want to save your life, lose it. That makes sense. What in the world are you talking about? Die. Die. Give up your life. Lay down your life. Face that which you do not want to face in the will of God. Remember a movie about D-Day, and the troops are pinned down on Omaha Beach. One of the commanders gets up and he says, there are two kinds of men on this beach, those who are dead and those who soon will be. Luke 9, 23-24 is Normandy Beach. If you stay down on the beach, if you stay there, you will die, says Jesus. You have to get up with the bullets flying around your ears. You have to get up, face what you don't want to face, because he says, I'll save your life. I'll get you there, I promise. But you do have to get up. I remember many years ago reading a little book called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in this little book, Bonhoeffer makes a point in which he says that Christ stands before you and every other person. Now, he did very little elaboration of what he meant by that. And I've thought about that comment over the years. Christ stands between me and every other man. I'd like to suggest for your consideration that there are at least three important ways in which he does so. Number one, he protects you from me. If I harm you, if I get to you, it's by divine permission. He protects you from me. I cannot harm you without his permission. Number two, he holds me accountable for how I treat you. But number three, number three is the one I want to talk about. When you meet me, you meet two people. You meet Jerry Banger, and you meet the Lord Jesus. 
Scripture tells me that he lives in me. Now, John the Baptist in John chapter 3 is imprisoned. And his disciples come to him with the query, who is this Jesus guy? And in verse 30, the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Gentlemen, Luke 9.23.24 is telling you, he must increase, but I must decrease. When you die to yourself, when as an act of self-denial you do what you know he wants you to do or refrain from doing what you know he doesn't want you to do, he increases and you decrease. But when you do the opposite, you increase and he decreases. When people meet you, who do they see? He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, guys, we're running short on time, but we're going to come to the application time. But uh, before I do that, questions or comments? Let me forge ahead. In the marriage, in your home, if you're going to be successful, your wife and kids have to understand this. Your wife is number one. Your kids are number two, and you are a very distant third. Your wife and your kids need to watch you apply Luke 9, 23, 24. You deny yourself. You die to yourself for them. Now, men, if you do that, what you have done is bought yourself a boatload of credibility as they watch you do that. Incredible men find that those that they are leading are very willing followers. This is where the curse left us. As an act of self-denial, this is what you and I are supposed to do. Turn our backs, because is it not true that you do not work to earn a living? I've heard that somewhere. Isn't that true? God says, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of the rainbow. I'll take care of the pot of gold. You get it over here. You take your wife seriously. You take the management of your household seriously. You give your life to your wife and your kids. You willing to do that? Guys, this is wisdom. That is smart money right there. That first picture is stupidity. That first picture is folly. And I'll tell you why. I've got this big, important doctor job. Real hot shot. But my big, important doctor job is nothing more but the making of mud balls. That's what I do for a living. What I do in the economy of God, the fact that I'm a dermatologist, is making mud balls because God is going to burn it all up. Who 
gives a rip. It's nothing. It's wood, hay, and straw. But my wife, on the other hand, is sitting there in that home with two little lumps of coal. And just as in nature, when you exert pressure on coal, it becomes a diamond. That's what my wife did with my kids. All I did was to assist her in doing her job. And by the time it came for me to do some more of the pulling, the heavy lifting, excuse me, she had already done all the heavy lifting. I was just doing some finishing touches. I already had two diamonds by the time she was done with them. And guys, I made it a point to walk through my door when I came home from work and to say to my wife, sweetheart, you're doing the good stuff. And I know it's monotonous. And I know it's hard. And I know, I know there's no pats on the back for it. But I want to give you a pat on the back because you're doing what's important. I'm making mud balls. Thanks for doing that with my kids. How can I help you? Now, guys, there's a second component to this. As you lay down your life for your wife and children, I want to point out to you Ephesians chapter 5. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22 and going to the end of the chapter in verse 33, Paul gives instructions first to the wives and then to the husbands. He gives three verses to the wives. He gives nine verses to the husbands. We're not going to go through those, but I want to note with you that in verse 33, in that section that is on husbands, he says, see to it that wives fear their husbands. Now, your translation in all likelihood says respect. That's a rotten translation. The word is phobos, phobia. See to it that wives fear their husbands. And you ask yourself, why on earth is that down there with the instructions to husbands? I'd like to offer for your consideration that the reason it is there is because it is incumbent upon you that she do that. How do you, how do you make your wife fear you? Well, you can be a jackass like me and, you know, wave your hands and do terrible things and shout and throw stuff and yeah, I'll get the trick done, but I'm not sure that's very uh, very productive. You can teach her, sweetheart, fearing me, man, I'm a chump. You know it better than I do. But because you're smarter than I am, you also know that to fear me is to fear God. I am Christ's vicar in our home, for better or for worse. And I grant you, Gail, you got a bum deal. But it's nonetheless the case. If you fear me, you do so because you fear Christ. Secondly, because 
To fear me is to fear Christ. I stand in our home for righteousness. Does my family see that I won't compromise on the commandments of God? Kids, I didn't make those commandments. The Lord Jesus Christ did, and we're not going to debate them. I will hold your feet to the fire. Gail, Carolyn, Scott, I hold your feet to the fire. They're his, and all four of us are going to answer to him one day regarding that. No compromise, no prisoners. That's how you teach your wife and kids to fear you. We'll talk later about application to children. Guys, thank you very, very much.